On the sixth day, the heavens and the earth and all their hosts were completed. And God ceased from his labors and rested on the seventh day. And God blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. He made it a day of rest and refreshing to be a sign between him and all of Israel. We thank God for the joy of life. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Borei Prihagahafin Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. We thank God for our daily provision. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Amotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth and has given us the true bread from heaven in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has hallowed us with your commandments, has desired us, and has given us in love and goodness your holy Shabbat as a heritage, in remembrance of the work of creation, the first of the holy festivals, commemorating the exodus from Egypt. For you have chosen us and sanctified us from among all the nations with love and goodness, and have given us your holy Shabbat as a heritage. Blessed are you, O Lord, who hallows the Shabbat. Amen the blessings over wives, mothers, and widows. May the Lord bless you as you care and nurture our families. May he bless and strengthen your hands as you serve the needs of others. May your children rise up and call you blessed. May your husband value you above riches and glory. May the Lord clothe you with dignity and adorn you with loving kindness. The blessings over our children May the Lord bless and keep you. May he look upon you with a smile. May he watch over you and protect you from harm. And to our sons, may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. To our daughters, may you be as Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and welcome to our Arab Shabbat broadcast here at B'nai Shalom. Our torsion, our our portion for this Sabbath comes from the book of Numbers. We are at the second portion, and it's called Naso. And it's going to start for us in Numbers chapter 4, there at verse 21. But verse 22 says, Take a census of the sons of Gershom. And the word census can also be translated count and take account of them, and naso means count or census in this particular case. Now, the first portion that we had in the book of Numbers from last Shabbat, we did have some numbers. We counted up the tribes, but this is now the count of the Levites, and there's three sons of Levi, and we're going to count the Levites up in this census now specifically of them. This is the Lord's portion. They're not considered the 12 tribes, although they are a tribe, but they belong to the Lord. So they're the Lord's portion. Let me just do a very quick survey of what we're going to find in this particular 
portion. There's going to be the duties is going to be explained of the different Levitical families, their part in managing the tabernacle, transporting the tabernacle that was in the wilderness and things like that. And if you remember Aaron and his sons, the Kohens, they're the priests, but there's many in the Levite tribe that help with the tabernacle and all of its processes to be done. Now, that's going to take us through chapter 4, and when we get into chapter 5, we're going to deal with some interesting things here, a little bit about how you're defiled. When a person becomes defiled before the Lord, it, it addresses that particular subject, and it gets to this very interesting commandment law called the trial by ordeal. And what it has to do with is of what's called the law of jealousy. If you have a husband who believes that his wife potentially has been unfaithful to him, he can bring her before the priests in the temple, and they have this procedure in which it can be proved as to whether or not she's been faithful to her husband or not, and it will answer the question of him being jealous whether his jealousy was correct or not correct. And there's this procedure. I'm going to get into that just a little bit because that's a very interesting procedure. Now, right off the bat, let me go ahead and answer the question, well, if the wife has to come, what about the husband? Don't we have a procedure for the husband? And according to the sages, they have a completely different way with dealing with where the wife suspects the husband has been unfaithful. There's a completely different way to do it. This is the procedure if a husband thinks his wife has been unfaithful, and it goes through with that. I'm going to give you some detail with regard to what that's all about. The next item, and we get to chapter 6, is going to be the law of the Nazarites and those that would take the Nazarite vow and what that is about and how that's supposed to work and how they complete the Nazarite vow. At the conclusion of chapter 6, we're going to have the portion called the priestly blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you, that blessing. We're going to talk about that. In fact, I want to spend a little bit of time on that because all of us in congregational life, even whether you've been in a church or whether you're in a messianic assembly, you'll hear this blessing spoken. And rather than just having some words said over you, I want to convey to you what are the meaning of these words because the blessing is only received if it's done, you know, with a heart toward this, and there's a heart to receive it. So I'm going to give a little bit more explanation with regard to that. When we get to Numbers chapter 7, you're going to find one of the most interesting and boring places in the Bible. It's going to be a description of each of the princes of Israel, the heads of tribes, and each tribe comes forth and gives a set of gifts to the tabernacle. It's going to include some silver bowls and gold bowls and some money and some fine flour and some other. And every tribe will bring the exact same gift. And the scripture details every tribe, every gift again, 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 and again. And you have to ask yourself, well, why didn't Moses just say, here's the list of gifts that every tribe brought? Why does it take this tribe, this leader, list the gifts, and then go to the next tribe, the next leader, and give an inventory of the exact same gifts, and then turn around and go, we have to do that 12 times. 
And by the way, when you go to read this, if you're doing a Bible reading program, <laughs> this is the part you will probably skip. You don't need to read all of it. And as I've heard one Christian tell me, he said, this is, this is tough. This is, this is hard to get something out of it. Well, I want to share with you today, there's something very special in there. And there's a very profound thing that this has to do with, not only the gifts, but specifically, why is this scripture written in this way? And I'm going to show you another passage in the book of Revelation, why this explains some things that happened there. All right, so that's a quick overview that's going to get us through the end of chapter 7. So going back to the first part of our portion of Naso, let's go back and let's look at what the Lord has to say specifically in this counting of the tribe of Levi. Verse 22, chapter 4, take a census of the sons of Gershom, also by their fathers' households, by their families. From 30 years and upward to 50 years old, you shall number them all who enter the service to do the work of the tent of meeting. There's a very important clue that's given to you. A priest that was serving in the temple, doing the basic daily work of handling sacrifices, taking the offerings up on the altar, things like that. You had to be 30 years old, and at 50 years old, you get retired from that job. Now, the high priest and the temple officers that were the temple council, they were usually the men over 50 years old. They weren't necessarily presenting sacrifices like the daily work of the other priests. You couldn't be an operating priest until you were 30 years old. You could be counted to be in the army. In fact, if you go back into our first portion, from 20 to 60 to be part of the army. But to be a priest operating the temple, you had to be 30 to 50. By the way, I don't know if you know this, but the FBI has a very special rule. You can't be an FBI agent out in the field, a regular field agent, once you get past the age of 50. You can be in management of the FBI, but you can't be a field agent anymore because they believe that at that age, you lose certain capabilities to be able to perform all the functions that you need to be able to do, that they're asking all their agents to do. Well, the same thing is true here with regard to the Levite priests serving in the temple. You lose the ability, the strength, the agileness that you need to be able to complete all of the tasks. So they limit it to between the ages 30 and 50. That's just a kind of an interesting thing for it. Now, the next you'll get, we get the count of Gershom. If you look down at verse 28, it's the sons of Merari, and that's another son. And if you look down a little bit further, well, you'll see the other counting of how it comes forth with Ithamar and those folks. Again, this is now the numbers part of defining the men who work in the tabernacle and work around the tabernacle, carry the tabernacle, transport it, and all of those other things associated with it. And so we come up with the full number of them. And if you'll recall, in the last portion, we numbered all the first, all of the Levites to be the payment for all the firstborn of Israel. All Levites are taken as the Lord's portion, as opposed to taking the firstborn. If you remember way back to the Passover, 
when God put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, and it was the firstborn that were delivered from that. The understanding is that if someone saves your life, you owe your life to them. Well, God saved the firstborn of Israel. The firstborn, therefore, belong to him. Now, God made this agreement with all of Israel, and he said, okay, instead of me taking the firstborn from all the different tribes, I will take the tribe of Levi on its own, and I will use that as the payment for the firstborn. So in these passages here, we're learning all about how God does that. By the way, still to this day, the firstborn of a herd, the firstborn of an animal belongs to the Lord. God has made a rule about the firstborn of all people belong to him. Now, in the case of us in the world as believers, the firstborn of us, and by the way, I'm a firstborn in my family, God has accepted the Levites as a substitute for me so I can be a regular guy just like everybody else, and I don't owe my whole life to him for that being born firstborn. However, because I have the testimony that God has saved me, I do owe my life to him. And so does every other person who has been saved by the Lord. You have become the servant of the Lord as a result of doing that. Now, by the way, we're going to find out about another law in the teaching of the Torah. It's called the law of the bondservant. And this is the law where the servant now makes public testimony and announces that he is going to be the servant out of love and response to what his master has done for him. And if you'll recall, the apostles, after the redemption of the Messiah, will write their letters. And some many times Paul would introduce his letter by saying the following, Paul, the bondservant of Yeshua, the Messiah, called an apostle. Paul actually took the title bondservant, and he made that superior over to being called an apostle. Now, quite honestly, in the faith that we have today, I doubt if you hear the term bondservant very frequently at all. Now, we heard about the apostle Paul. We've heard about the apostle Peter. How about the bondservant Peter? How about the bondservant Paul? How about us? You know, do we recognize that we're supposed to be bondservants of the Lord? Those are things that come from the law, that how you're counted, how you're valued before the Lord. All right, let me move to chapter 5 because I really want to get into the detail of this one particular procedure called the trial by ordeal. Let me take you to chapter 5, verse 5. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, say, Speak to the sons of Israel. When a man or woman commits any sin of mankind and acts unfaithfully against the Lord, that person is guilty. Then he shall confess his sins which he has committed and shall make restitution in full for his wrong and add to it one-fifth of it and give it to him whom he has wronged. But if the man has no relative whom restitution may be paid for the wrong, the restitution which is made for must go to the Lord for the priest besides the ram of the atonement by which atonement is made for him. Rather interesting rule. Did you know that if you sin against another man, that God's saying you must make restitution to him and add one-fifth to it? 
well, hadn't heard about that one-fifth part. I had heard about, you know, I should make restitution. But what about that one-fifth part? You know, we don't do that, do we? That is the law. That's how you restore. Do you remember when the Lord says, when you come to me to make a gift to me, lay your gift at the base of the altar. You go solve the problem. You go resolve that problem you have with your brother before you come and try to make your gift to me. And the Lord really insists on that we keep our, what we call our accounts short, that we, we don't have ongoing conflicts amongst us as brethren, and that we make amends and we add to it one-fifth. Now, I'm not going to get into further details about how we do that, but I wanted you to know this is what the Lord instructs in the law. And in my understanding at this and so forth, quite honestly, we're not keeping this part yet. We, we don't know enough about it. We have never dealt with this. We're going to have to teach more of this. We're going to have to get everybody to understand it before we can implement it. I myself have not implemented that. I know what the commandment says. I'm asking the Lord specifically, you know, what is the help? Help me to understand this better so that I can implement it in my life and so forth for it. Verse 9, also every contribution pertaining to all the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they offer to the priest, shall be his. So every man's holy gifts shall be his. Whatever any man gives to the priest, it becomes his. Now, a lot of people think, you know, in this thing, well, if you give it to the priest, you're really giving it to the Lord. No, the Lord is saying, no, when you give it to the priest, it belongs to the priest. It belongs to him. Verse 11. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and it's unfaithful to. Now we're coming to a very interesting passage about, quote, the unfaithful wife. Again, this is not sexist, but you need to listen to what this has to say. Verse 13, And a man has intercourse with her, and it's hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she is undetected, although she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, and she has not been caught in the act. So get this, we're talking about a woman who's been unfaithful, nobody has caught her, nobody knows about it, the husband doesn't know about it, but he suspects. And so he is jealous, he gets a spirit of jealousy. Verse 14, it says, if a spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife when she is defiled herself. Or if a spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife when she has not defiled herself. So this is a procedure that deals with the spirit of jealousy that's in the man. This is not resolving all the stuff. It's resolving the issue of a man who becomes jealous. Now, let me say this. Most Christians, when you think about the concept, the emotion of being jealous— we tend to take a very dim view toward that. When you see somebody that's acting jealous, we generally say, no, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't do that. Well, it needs to be resolved is really what it needs. But the spirit of jealousy is a real thing. By the way, let me remind you that God, when God defines himself, he says he is a jealous God. He does not, like his bride, messing around with other gods or even made-up gods. 
He's jealous. He wants his bride to belong to him. Now, at this point, are you starting to get the drift of what this is really about? This is really a test that's illustrating how God regards us as his bride. This is to deal with the jealousy issue, the emotion that rises up in the man when he thinks his wife has been unfaithful. So let's see what the rest of the procedure calls for. Verse 15, the man shall then bring his wife to the priest and shall bring as an offering for her one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal. She shall not pour oil on it, nor put frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of memorial, a reminder of iniquity. Then the priest shall bring her near to the altar and have her stand before the Lord. All right? So we've got this offering, grain offering, which is, has nothing in it, it's just the grain. We have the wife who's now brought before, brought before the altar. And according to tradition, it was understood that her hair has to be let down. Her hair has to be exposed. The covering over her head that would show honor to her husband, it is removed. Before the Lord, she's standing there, all, all of her before the Lord. And it continues to say, say the following, the priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel and shall take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it in the water. The priest shall then have the woman stand before the Lord and let her hair of her woman's head go loose and place the grain offering of the memorial in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy and in the hand of the priest is to be the water of bitterness that brings a curse. Now what happens, you're, they're gonna write the curse onto a piece of parchment, something that they can write. They're gonna write the words, if I have been unfaithful, may I be cursed. And essentially what happens is they take those words, fresh words on the parchment, and they wash them off into the cup that has some of the dust of the tabernacle in it. So the words are actually in the cup. And the idea is that she then must stand before the Lord and say, I have not been unfaithful to my husband, or, and this is what usually would happen if she'd been unfaithful, at that point the procedure would come to a conclusion because she confesses. And she says, yes, I have been unfaithful. The procedure basically stops at that point, and she's with the priest now to make amends and repent before her husband. This is actually a methodology to restore the marriage. It's a methodology to get past the issue of the husband being jealous, because if that issue is not resolved in his heart completely and be at peace, he's not going to be successful in the following marriage. This is a way to get it resolved. Now, if she is guilty, and she decides to go through the procedures, she drinks it as though, are you ready for this? As though she's innocent. And then inside of her belly, the curse will emerge. Now, I gotta tell you, the I don't think there's anything special about the ink or the dirt that's in the temple. I wouldn't eat dirt, but there's nothing really special. What What is far more meaningful here is the idea of standing before God and before others and openly lying about it. And when people lie, 
they, they don't really realize that they're going to live with those words. If they lie, they've defiled themselves. And they're going to suffer the consequences emotionally, subconsciously, and so forth. And it was a much feared thing. Now, let's step back at the macro level of this thing and ask, why in the world has God got this procedure? And I alluded to you before about God is a jealous God. We're his bride. And by the way, let's be real honest about this. We haven't been very faithful to him. He's our bridegroom, and we're the bride, and we, we've said all the right words. We said, yes, we love you, Lord, and we'll be faithful to you, but we all know we haven't. And he has a spirit of jealousy. He's a jealous God. And he needs to resolve that. So you know how he's going to resolve it with all of us? He's going to put us before a trial of ordeal. He's going to challenge us to find out if we really are going to be faithful. You know how he's going to do it? Have us go through the great tribulation. The great tribulation, one of the purposes of it for us is to remove all the dross, remove all unfaithfulness from us about the Lord. The end result of the tribulation saints is that we will don robes of righteousness and come before the Lord. And so what we've got going here in this little procedure is we have an explanation for us about, and I'm going to use this, by the way, when we get into the future and we're in the great trib and all you brethren say, Monty, why do we have to go through this? I'll tell you what the answer is going to be. This is the trial by ordeal. You and I have been unfaithful to God. God has the right, because he is a jealous God, God has the right to put us to the test. And by the way, that was the reason why he took the children of Israel through the wilderness, to test them, to see what was in their heart, to see if they would believe and trust him. We're going to do the same thing. We're going to go through, and we're going to find out who believes and who doesn't believe. Do you trust God for all the essentials of your life? Do you trust God to deliver you? We're going to find out, you know, about that. In the original Egyptian Exodus, Moses tells us that the Lord suffered us to be hungry, suffered us to be thirsty, so that he could see what was in our heart, so that we would learn man does not live by bread alone, and that we have the same test coming for us in the Great Tribulation. It's the same dynamics. We're looking for a better result this time. We're looking for the tribulation saints to be able to speak faithfully as being the bride of the Messiah. All right, so let's move from there. I'm only going to briefly mention the law of the Nazarites. This is a procedure for an individual who wants to make a strong vow of dedication to the Lord for some particular purpose. It doesn't list all the purposes, but it, you do this. And in the course of keeping this vow... The person who makes this vow lets his hair grow along. The reason why his hair is to show the energy and the force and the vitality he's putting into completing the vow. And then once the vow is completed, how he's to come before the Lord and that hair is presented to the Lord 
and he presents some other sacrifices and so forth to complete the vow. We do not have many people doing Nazarite vows today, and the reason is because we don't have a temple and we don't have the priests. You required those things to be able to do this. In the kingdom, we'll see what some of this is about, but right now, it, we don't see evidence of it. Oh, by the way, there is no comparison between the word Nazarite and Nazareth. Nazareth is a city. Nazarite is something that's in the Torah that has to do with keeping vows. Now, we're going to get to this part, and this is the part I really want to have been getting to here in our portion this week because I really want to focus on this. Chapter 6, begin at verse 21, or excuse me, at verse 22, it says this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and I then will bless them. All right, so... I'm sure you're familiar with this, what we call a priestly blessing. Even churches sometimes will do this as a part of the conclusion of their church service. Synagogues always do it. Messianic assemblies do this frequently. And this is a well-known thing for the brethren. Everybody likes a blessing. Everybody wants a blessing. But what is the blessing? What, what is really being said? So I want to break this down just a little bit for you so you have a better appreciation when you receive this what you're really receiving. There are three short phrases in this blessing. The first one has three Hebrew words, and it's talking about material blessing and maintaining that. The second one is more of a spiritual blessing, and it's going to deal with the grace of God. And the final one is a what we call a super blessing, that has to do with peace. And by the way, the ultimate spiritual goal for your life is for you to be at peace, to be at the point of contentment, to be at the point where you're not suffering need and you're not worried about anything, and you're at peace with God, at peace with the world, at peace with men. The expression that when a person dies, rest in peace. Part of that is finally you've gotten to the best thing that you can possibly get. And so the blessing lays out the blessing for material things. It lays out the blessing for spiritual things. It lays out the blessing for peace. This blessing in Hebrew is three words, five words, seven words. There's a little pattern. Now, if you go through the rabbis, they will say, that the blessing that for you to receive, that it has to be done by a priest. But it's not the priest who's blessing. God is standing right there with the priest. The priest is simply the vehicle to get the blessing to you, but it's actually God that's putting the blessing on you. And that's that last phrase, so they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, I then will bless them. It's not the priest that blesses, it's the Lord that renders the blessing, but he's using the priest to carry it out to the people. This is also like the pattern when Moses was dispatched by God at Mount Sinai 
to go back to Egypt. Aaron was with him. And if you recall, Moses made the statement to God. He said, well, I don't, I don't speak real good. I, I stutter. You know, and he said, no, you will have Aaron speak for you, but it, you, will, you will be the one that will be telling, talking to Pharaoh. You'll be the one that will be bringing the children of Israel out. But it was Aaron who did the speaking. Well, the same way God is there and he's going to use the priest like Aaron. In fact, it is Aaron and his sons to then speak on behalf of the Lord to carry the message out of blessing for us. Today, we don't have priests. Today, we look to a righteous man. We look to a man who's spiritual to render the blessing. So that's the reason why rabbis do it, cantors do it. I say the blessing, you know, or my congregation. But the, the whole point, that's a rabbinical instruction about the priest had to do it. I believe, you know, God can allow anyone to render a blessing on his behalf. But when you're doing it, you need to understand it's not you making the blessing. You're simply being the conduit for God to assist so he can put the blessing on the people. Let me go through this blessing just a little bit for those of you who receive it so you understand a little bit more about it. Verse 24, it says, the Lord bless you. Now, in English, the word you can mean singular or it can mean plural. In other words, I could say you, and I'm talking to one individual. Or I could say you, and it's the whole group of you. In the Hebrew, this is the singular. It's not plural. So when it says the Lord bless you, it's talking to an individual person. When you receive the blessing of this blessing from the Lord, it's directed right at you. Now, there might be some other brethren around who might be getting it. That's great. But it is definitely right at you. It is as though you're the only person there when, you, when he says the Lord bless you. Now, if God blesses you, and we're talking about material things, you probably are going to gain some things. If he blesses you in your finances, why, you might get more money. Well, here's the problem. If you start getting blessings and you start acquiring an abundance of blessings, no matter what it is, there's going to be enemies who are going to look at you and they're going to target you because you got the stuff. And they're going to want to come and steal from you and take from you. And people will be envious of you. And you get the blessings, but you're also going to get this other trouble coming at you. You know, when you're poor, you don't have to worry about being mugged. But if you're a rich man walking around with a you know, big wallet and a, and a watch and, and all the other trappings of fine clothes, you're a target to somebody who wants to rob you. Well, if you get all these blessings, you now need defense. So the second phrase of this is, and may he keep you. You know, the blessing is, may God bless you and then defend you. Getting the blessings and not being defended and having them stolen doesn't do you any good. May the Lord bless you, increase you, but then may he also defend you. And by the way, we all want good things to happen to us. We all do. If, if God comes up and say, hey, I'm, I'm going to help you, I'm going to increase you in, in your work and in your things, you're more than happy to do it. But many times you forget, yeah, but how am I going to hang on to it and keep it? Well, the Lord says he'll deliver you. But the Lord also says 
He's going to deliver you and protect you when you get the blessing. Even if you don't think you've got a lot, he's still going to, he's, this is a blessing, says, I'll protect you. I'll protect you from enemies. I'll protect you from the thief and those kinds of folks. The second line now moves to a spiritual level. It says, the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. Let's talk about that phrase, may he make his face shine on you. God told Moses, you can't see my face. If you see my face, you will surely die. And one of the teachings that we have, particularly back when Isaac was wrestling with the Lord before he met his brother Esau, he wrestled with the Lord, and when he got done with it, he called the place Peniel. Peniel means the face of God. He was wrestling with this man. He saw his face and so forth, and he realized it was God, and he says, I was literally face to face with him. Now, what this blessing is saying, may God turn his face onto you and focus on you. Now, when God does that, the glory of God begins to go toward you. His presence, it's very powerful to be in God's presence. Man, did, by the way, are you aware of the fact that if you're in God's presence, there can't be any sin? You can't sin in God's presence. It, he completely occupies you spiritually when you're at. So may he make his face shine on you. May he focus on you to where it helps to protect you. And spiritually, you don't sin. You continue to be the person that God wants you to be. And you get the benefit of his glory coming toward you. This is a very powerful spiritual thing. And then specifically, he says, may he be gracious to you. May he give you unmerited favor, really good stuff spiritually. Let me give you a good example of what the second one really does. Your health, your healing, the health of your soul, dealing with depression or joy or you know, the joys of life. He heals those things. He makes those better for you. I don't know of anybody who doesn't want to be more happy. And if you want to be more happy, you need this blessing, you know, because that's part of what God does in, in the form of this blessing. It's a spiritual quality that takes place within us. So he deals with the material, your bodily things, and your needs and so forth. And now he's dealing with what's in your soul, spiritually, the things that take place in there. And now we come to the final phrase where he says, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now, wait a minute. He said, may his face shine on you. And now he's saying, may his countenance come upon you. What is countenance? This part? Isn't that the same thing? Isn't that the face? No. The face is where he focuses on you, but his countenance is when his presence comes into your life. Would you agree with me that if you were truly in the presence of God, you would not have a sensation of any need whatsoever? The answer is yes. Yes, I wouldn't feel any need whatsoever. And oh, by the way, when you were in the presence of God like that, would you have any particular desire other than to continue to be in the presence of God. And finally, when he says peace, you're getting that element where 
There's no need that's driving you. You don't have despair. You're at calm. You're content. You're in a very, very pleasant, continuing to be pleasant place. I believe that when a person passes, a believer passes, I believe he goes into that state before God. He's present with the Lord. He is at peace. He has no concerns whatsoever. And by the way, that's the reason why after you have a loved one leave you, they're not beating the path to come back and talk to you. They're at peace. And they have no concerns about you or no concerns about the Lord. They know everything is going to be fine. Then the Lord's going to take care of me just like they took care of them. They're going to be happy. When I, when I think back about my loved ones and those that have passed before me, I'm reminded of this verse, and I say, I think I know where they're at. They're at where I've been trying to get for a long time. They're at that place of contentment, that place of peace. Thus, we have the phrase, rest in peace. And, and the peace we're talking about is the peace that's in this blessing that is spoken over us. Now, just very quickly, I, I want to share that blessing with you. And the way we do it is we say it in the Hebrew and some different cantors will do different things. But the idea is that you have your hands out. And traditionally, when you do it, you spread your fingers like that. And this is not the famous Vulcan sign that came from Star Trek. It is, it's actually, you're making the letter Shin, which looks like a W. And the letter Shin is the letter for Shaddai. Shaddai is almighty. So this is a blessing that comes from the Almighty. This is a blessing that comes from God, not me. This blessing is coming upon you. It's from God. And the blessing, very quickly, is Yavareka Adonai Vayishmareka, Yaer Adonai Panavaleka, Bikuneka, Yase Adonai Panavaleka, Vayasem Laka Shalom. Now, we Messianics, we have another phrase that we add to it, and it says, Shem Yeshua HaMashiach Sar HaShalom. Translated, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, Shalom. So this little portion of Scripture here in the book of Numbers serves as almost a constant weekly element for those of us who are walking out the faith. And this is a blessing you want. And it's interesting that God specified this blessing. It's not just any guy creating a blessing and saying nice things over you. God said, this is the blessing I want to put over them, and I want you to put it on them. I want you to put that blessing on them. It comes from me. All right. So I love that part of the scripture. So now we come to chapter 7, and this is where we get this interesting, very difficult to read thing where we're listing each tribe and the gifts that they have brought to the tabernacle at the dedication. They did it one day at a time. And on the first day of the dedication of the tabernacle, the first day that Aaron and his sons were ordained, the first day, the first sacrifices, if you go back in the Torah portion, Shemini, that eighth day after the dedication of the altar, it was the first day of the operation of the tabernacle. This first person, Nakshan, who's of the tribe of Judah, he's the prince of Judah at this point, 
he brings these gifts representing Judah first, the tribe of Judah. Why did he get chosen to be the first? It goes back to a story that I've shared with you before. When Moses and the children of Israel were on the banks of the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's chariots are bearing down on them, and Moses had told the people, stand still and see the salvation of God. And then when he looked at God, and God said, well, tell him, go forward, go, go. Well, Nakshan, when he heard that, he immediately, before God parted the sea, he immediately jumped in the Red Sea. And he thought, this was the this is one of the thoughts, he thought they were all going to walk on the water and walk across the Red Sea. Well, as you know, God actually parted the waters. But when Nakshan jumped in first, he acted first, he got wet. So one of the sayings that we say about the children of Israel crossing the Red Sea is the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but Nakshan's feet were wet. And they give Nakshan the honor of making the first gifts to the tabernacle because he was the first person to act on the words, go forward to cross the Red Sea. So they, they render his honor for being that first person. Now, here's the gifts that he brings. I'm only going to list them one time. They are the exact same gifts given for every tribe thereafter. The gifts include the following. And let me read for you from Numbers chapter 7, beginning verse 12 through 17. And it says, Now the one who presented his offering on the first day was Nachshon, the son of Amenadoth, of the tribe of Judah. And his offering was one silver dish, whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver bowl of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, one gold pan of 10 shekels, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs, one year old. This was the offering of Nakshan, the son of Amenadab. So we got these, and when they talked about the shekels, it wasn't money, it was the weight. So for example, when he talks about the two silver bowls, one of them was 130 shekels, a shekel is a half an ounce. A half ounce of silver is what's called a shekel. So that's 130 half ounces. So that turns out to be 66 or so, 65 or so ounces was the weight of that one of those silver bowls. Well, silver is, is you know, that many number of ounces, the, the bowl was like three or four pounds. The, the, that's how heavy the bowl was. And then the other one was half that weight. And these were filled with the flour, the fine flour, all of the stuff to make a, a what we call a grain offering to the Lord. And then there were the animals that were brought. There was incense that was brought. So you have animals for a burnt offering, incense to, to burn before the Lord, a meal offering. And then you have a male goat, a sin offering. And then you have a whole series of ones which are called peace offerings. Now, this was going to be a great feast, and in fact, that's what they had. On the first day of the tabernacle, there was a great feast. There were many sacrifices, but each day, a tribe would bring these things, and they would have the celebration for 12 days to do this. Interesting first 12 days of the tabernacle, each tribe bringing the gifts. 
So what is the corollary? What do we see later in Scripture that might explain why in the world is this going on? Well, this is when the tribes of Israel are coming to present something before the Lord. We have something in the book of Revelation that is the flip of this. It's in Revelation chapter 7. This is Numbers chapter 7. That's Revelation chapter 7. And it talks about the sealing of the tribes of Israel. And God seals them one tribe at a time. And you can see that list there in the, in the book of Revelation. It's a very interesting correlation. And I believe the sealing of the 144,000 at the start of the Great Trib is going to be a 12-day event. Just like the Tabernacles was a 12-day event, we're going to have a 12-day event at the start of the Great Tribulation when the 144,000 are sealed all over the world, wherever they might be. My time has run out, but this is a tremendous book that we've gotten into. And in fact, I had an interesting conversation with a fellow not too long ago, and he said, well, of all the books in the Torah, you know, Numbers is really the one that probably is not that much fun to do. And I said, oh, oh, I, I want to correct you. There are some tremendous things in this book that you just don't know about. And this is a very good book for the Torah. And it's going to be my pleasure to be sharing some of those things with you. And in fact, in the next Sabbath, I'm going to show you something stunning that is in this book. We'll look forward to that next Sabbath. Shabbat Shalom to all of you. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.